Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And once you get there, go ahead and stand up. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are closing out our series on communion. We've been doing a series on communion the past few weeks and uh, looking at uh, the communion table, the Eucharist, and the importance of it in the life of Christians. And so this is gonna be our last week on it. And uh, I just wanted to um, make something a little bit clear. We've been, the way that we've been doing scripture reading at the beginning of the message uh, has changed a little bit. Obviously, you guys are standing up. Um, and we have a little bit of a liturgy to go along with it after we read the scripture, whoever's reading it, typically will say, this is the word of the Lord. And then the reply from everybody else, the people of God, the witness uh, of God here on earth says, thanks be to God. Okay, so we'll have that up on the screen. If you get lost at all, we'll have it on the screen. And it's a way of acknowledging the importance of divine revelation. I was uh, listening to a podcast recently, a very famous podcast host interviewing a Christian, and he just couldn't understand this Christian and his beliefs. And it's like, well, you don't believe in divine revelation. And we do. We have divine revelation right before us. And this is a way of showing the importance that this plays in our lives. So uh, let's begin reading in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be some differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, will pro you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of, number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, we are judged in this way by the Lord, 
we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. This is the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. You know, over the past two weeks, uh, we have talked about the access, the mood, and the power that comes from the blood of Christ in our lives. And last week, we specifically talked about how the shape of one's life is to be informed by the meal. You want to know how to live? You want to know how to really suck all of life out of life? You need to become a living sacrifice. Look at the broken bread, the broken body. Look at the wine, the blood poured out. That is to become the shape of your very life. And this week, what I want us to see is that communion, it shapes the individual's life, but it also shapes the communal life. It shapes the community's life. See, communion is both vertical and horizontal. In one sense, the vertical is the blood. It aligns someone with God, making them righteous. It's a decree over their life, washed in the blood. We've used the language of you put on blood-tinted glasses to view yourself and the rest of your life. But in another way, communion is horizontal, and it's horizontal through the body. This broken bread makes us right with one another and unified. Paul actually makes this connection in the previous chapter, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Here's what he says. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. There's a lot of debate in the world, around communion, around transubstantiation, when you eat it or when you pray for it, does it become the actual body and blood of Christ? Uh, and there's a lot of debate and confusion around it. I prefer to just say what Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. It's mysterious, leave it at that. But what's interesting about this is that many scholars say, you know, there's a lot of debate that's taken place over transubstantiation, but one thing that is not debated is that there's another kind of transubstantiation that happens. When you eat this bread, you become one with the people around you. Because of the one loaf, we all share on the one loaf, we who are many are one body. It's our share in Christ's body that makes us one. And I think that this is what the prayer of, John, of Jesus in John 17 is all about. May they be in us, one with us, and may they be one with one another. The message of communion is this. You can't be individually one with Christ and not one with those who are also one with Christ. Think about that. You can't be in, on an individual level, I'm one with Christ, and not one with those around you who are also one with Christ. This meal is the unifying meal, and it matters because I think we're more prone to believe that our ideology or our political preference or our theological camp or even our personalities, those are the things that unify us. But here's what the communion says. Communion says, because we pull from one loaf, we who are many are one body. So you're one with people that you disagree with. You're one with people that you might even be at odds with, and the meal will challenge you to move towards unity to move towards forgiveness. 
So what I want you to see today is this. I want you to see that communion, because of this powerful meal, it wasn't a side ritual for the church. It was the very center of the church. And the center of the church wasn't a few couple minute moment in a Sunday gathering. It was a meal. What does he say? He says, you should all eat together. You should have a meal together that nobody is hungry from, right? See, the church was birthed around a table. One of the first scenes of the church that we get in the Bible actually depicts the life rhythm of Christians. Many of you are familiar with this passage. In Acts 2.42, at the very advent of the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That to the breaking of bread becomes just a shorthand way of saying communion all throughout the rest of the New Testament. But what happens is that what began in, in you know, Acts 2, 2.42 is beautiful. And so much of church, especially in the evangelical tradition, is like, how do we get back to that? Like, that was so beautiful. But if you read the rest of the New Testament, and certainly the passage we read today, you know that these meals go sideways. And that's where our chapter comes in today. Remember, Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, he's been traveling around uh, the, the Near East, and he's been planting churches and then building them up in maturity through his visits and through his letters. And so he's speaking to a lot of the issues. If you read through 1 Corinthians, he's just constantly speaking to the issues that they had theologically or practically within the church. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's addressing their communion. He's addressing their meals. And I want to work through this just a little bit with you. So look back down at your Bibles in verse 17. He says this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Something to just note from the very beginning is that church has always been messy, (laughs) Church has always been messy. You get a group of people together who attempt to apprehend the divine and encounter God, and it's going to be a mess, okay? So from the very beginning, you're like, what's wrong with my church? It's like, it's been the same thing that's been wrong with the church down throughout history. It involves human beings who have motivations that are out of place and fears that drive their decision-making, okay? It's been messy from the very beginning, Verse 19, he says this, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you were eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have your homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Not a great start (laughs) to communion in homes. Here's one uh, one, one author, Ben Witherington. Here's what he had to say about this moment. He says, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is irate at the church for approaching those communal meals and the Lord's Supper as if they were just another highly stratified Greco-Roman meal where the rich get rich food and the poor are left out. Now, What does he mean by a highly stratified meal? Well, here's the reality. Communion, kind of like we talked about the past couple weeks, is supposed to be a distinct culture-making meal. It isn't supposed to be something that's closeted, but something that actually turns a city upside down. It turns the way a culture treats one another upside down. 
Communion is supposed to represent such unity and such equality before the cross that the town would look at the people receiving communion and go, look at their meals. Oh, look how honoring they are. How full they are with people who wouldn't typically cross paths within our culture. But the problem, and this is what Paul's getting at, is that their communion meals are looking more like Roman meals or Roman culture's meals rather than the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ. There's a couple different meals that um, scholars think that they might be kind of, communion is beginning to look like. And the first one is a guild dinner. A guild dinner. Within Roman culture, they would have guilds, and those guilds were known for dinner parties. So since the earliest Christians didn't have a purpose-built building, they didn't have churches that they were gathering in with you know, steeples and grand arches, uh, they didn't have priests, they didn't have temples, it is likely that they would have been considered, Christians getting together and having this communion meal would have been considered by the surrounding culture as some sort of guild who follows a philosophy. Guilds would have typically had meals together that served specifically for social advancement. So it would have been a place to rub shoulders, to tell lukewarm jokes, and to look for avenues of getting ahead in life. Think like an ancient country club, which is exactly the opposite of what communion is intended to represent. Communion is a meal that's not like a guild dinner. It's not a place for you to get so, to socially, you know, rub shoulders with the, with the person who has the, the business that you want to do, you know, partnership with. That's not what it's for. Communion represents Christ going low, becoming the servant, dying. It's the opposite. Now, the other meal that is probably even more likely that was infiltrating communion was the pagan feast with temple meat. Uh, there are real archaeology sites of neighborhoods near pagan temples in which the homes get bigger and nicer and more extravagant because they were strategically placed close to the temple with large dining rooms so that they could get the fresh meat that had just been sacrificed to the pagan deity and bring it to their dining room and say, hey, look what we got. You want to be at this party. You want to have this meal, Right? These dining rooms were furnished with what was called a triclinium. So here's an example of one of these, uh, one of these dining rooms. And uh, you, you probably know like, that Roman culture was known for their meals. They were known for laying around. They would, you would literally lay on these couches. The food would be brought to the center, and you'd spend hours and hours eating. There would be a drinking parties that would likely follow after this. Maybe they would invite a philosopher to come and to uh, you know, provide some entertainment, speaking about common issues of the day, philosophies, and that sort of a thing, right? And though the whole home would benefit from the meat coming into the home, the servants, the, the lower class individuals that might have lived in the neighborhood, these drinking parties and these, this inner room, the dining room, the triclinium, that was invitation only. Invitation only for important high-status individuals while the servants or the low-class neighbors would eat outside in the atrium. And this culture, this Roman culture, is spilling over into the communion meal where the more well-to-do Christians, and you gotta imagine this, there would be more well-to-do Christians with well-refined tastes. They didn't wanna eat the same things that the plebeians were eating. Uh, they were, the, these rich Christians were having one meal with their, you know, refined acquaintances, likely starting earlier in the day because they aren't in blue-collar fields that work later into the day. So they eat all the food, right? While poor Christians with less refined tastes are coming later, once everybody has already eaten all the good stuff, and they're getting the scraps outside the triclinium, outside the dining room. And Paul is irate. 
because it's sending the wrong message theologically about the abundance and the beauty of Christ, about the unity that the meal is supposed to bring. It's the exact wrong message. It's saying there isn't a level playing field before God. There isn't an equal needing of the body and the blood of Christ. There's some who are special and some who are outside and the culture has syncretized you. It's syncretized the way that you're thinking about the people around you. See, communion isn't supposed to look like these other meals. Communion is designed to change Corinth, not the other way around. So Paul corrects them. Look down at your Bibles, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's that serious. It's a proclamation of the cross and resurrection of Jesus when you eat it and when you drink it. So then whoever, and this is key, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what does he mean by this? Guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. He continues in verse 28. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, what's interesting to me is he says, for those of you who are eating and drinking without discerning the body, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Now, which body is he talking about? Is he talking about Christ's actual body? Or is he talking about us, Christ's body here on earth? Ben Witherington, again, you can tell I read a book. Uh, <laughs> Anazios, that's the Greek word, has been translated in an unworthy manner and sometimes incorrectly thought to modify not the way of partaking, but the character of the person's partaking. But Paul refers to those who are partaking in an unworthy manner, not, to, not those who themselves are unworthy, which Paul would presumably see as including any and all believers. Everyone is unworthy to receive the body broken and the blood of Christ. That's why this is a unity meal. It's not a unity meal because Christians are awesome and you come to the table and you're like, I'm awesome enough to receive this. You come to the table because you're equally in need. You need this just as bad as everybody else. Just as bad as the millionaire who lives down the street from you. Just as bad as the person who doesn't have a house. You need this meal just as much as everybody around you. So examine yourself before you eat and drink. And here is the examination. Do you, go, do you go introspective and go, am I worthy of this? And what did I do this week? No, here's the examination. Are you recognizing the effect Christ is meant to have on your view of yourself and the people around you? You didn't get it. Are you recognizing the effect Christ is meant to have on your view of yourself man, this meal means this. I'm righteous. I've been welcomed in. I can have intimacy. Are you recognizing that? And are you also, don't stop there. 
Are you also looking around you to the people around you, those people that you might have issue with, those people who've hurt you in the past, and are you also saying, and, they, and Christ died for them? Christ died for them as well. That is discerning the body. That is what it means to examine yourself. Am I discerning the body of Christ? You know, even though these meals were happening at the rich Christians' homes, likely, Paul insists that the meal changes the social distinctions, not the social distinctions changing the meal. Okay, so what can we learn? What do we learn from this little foray into the first century? The church should have meals together. We should eat together. And our meals should include communion. And the meal, it shouldn't look like any other meal that you've had before. The meal should shape the values of the community, not the other way around. So this morning from Paul's instructions in the first century, I wanna give two invitations to us as a church in this century. And the first invitation is this, high sacrament and low church. High sacrament, low church. You know, it's very clear that Paul and the rest of the early church felt that this meal was the center of their faith and that it was sacramental. Just turn the page over to the left in your Bibles to uh, chapter 10. Look over at chapter 10. I want to just show you something briefly. I thought about going all through chapter 10 because it's also just jam-packed. Uh, but I want to look at just a specific section of chapter 10. Uh, look down at your Bibles at verse 14. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. And he says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation? Everybody say participation. participation. In the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation? Say participation. participation. In the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. Look, guys, this meal is mysterious. Are you okay with that? <laughs> it's a mystery. But something is taking place in this meal. There's participation heavenwards, and there is participation earthwards. Is that a, is that a word? I don't know. There's participation with God. We participate in his blood. And there's participation with people. We come from one loaf. Again, Witherington. <laughs> Christianity is a materialistic faith. The ordinary, familiar, basic stuff of everyday life, bread and wine, opens up new levels of communion with the divine in our midst. There's something sacramental taking place. All of our senses are engaged in this multimedia, sensuous, multifaceted experience of the divine human encounter. It's mysterious. It's a, it's a sacrament. It's an overlap of heaven and earth when we receive this, when we take this. A sacrament is a place where the intention of God is met with the faith of people in his created world. A sacrament is a place where the intention of God to meet with his people, to commune with his people, is met with the faith of people, we believe this meal actually matters, in his created world. Real bread, real wine. And heaven comes as a result. I, I don't pretend to know how it all works. I, I'm not up here. I had a whole message where I was gonna try and parse a lot of things. I don't know. I don't understand how it all works. I resonate with John Calvin who said this, I'd rather experience it than understand it. I'd rather experience it than understand it. Thomas Aquinas, he said, 
after writing all that he wrote, that, that he wrote, maybe the greatest theologian of all time, he said, after a, a profound experience with communion, he said this. He said, all that I've written is like straw compared to experiencing the body and blood of Christ. So we have a high sacramental view of communion, very high view. But also I said low church, low church. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the decentralized nature of the early church was not a bug, it was a feature. It wasn't a bug in the church that they were so decentralized and disorganized, it was a feature. Churches meeting in homes, breaking bread was the power of the early church. It appealed to the hungry. It appealed to, think about people who just needed a meal. It appealed to them. There's a place that I can go and they're gonna have a meal. It appealed to those who were never invited into the triclinium, into the banquets. It said, come and partake. Come and participate. This can be family. Uh, there's a couple different historical scholars that look at the, the growth of the early church in the first century and the second century, and they say, much of it was rich women whose husbands were uninterested in spiritual matters. It was, <laughs> okay, it's close to home. Uh, it, was, it was women who had, had uh, potentially even been cast out by their husbands who found a home within the church. They could have status. They could be listened to and cared for and fed. This meal helped grow the early church. The decentralized nature was not a bug. It was a feature. And it helped to catapult the church. Some have thought that there must be a priest, somebody approved of within an authority structure to make this a sacrament. I think that's incorrect. In Acts uh, chapter two, when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, it says, was it 2,000, 3,000 were added to their number that day. Within that same chapter, they begin to break bread in homes around Jerusalem and the, and the surrounding area there were not enough apostles to go to the various homes and to bless all the sacrament to make sure that it was effective. The decentralized nature of low church was a feature, not a bug. Because the Holy Spirit has made you all priests, what I'm saying is that your homes all carry cathedral capacity. The ability to have profound encounter with God and one another through a meal in your home. Which is why the second invitation today is this. It's to family discipleship. Look, simply said, most of the value of what church is is gonna happen outside of this room on a Sunday. I love gathering together. I love the presence of God, the tangible presence of God in this room when we worship together. You feel the Holy Spirit moving. I love praying for people at the end of our gathering, people coming forward. And there's something about the, the, the congregation. It's beautiful, it's beautiful. But the ability to be accountable to the power of the blood will largely happen with people who actually know you and sit at your kitchen table. The, the ability to be accountable to the blood. We're not accountable not to sin. We're accountable to see ourselves through the blood and to make decisions that reflect that. Accountability in the church has kind of come to mean like, hey, make sure you don't sin. Did you sin this week? Okay, well, we'll pray for you, brother. 
It's not accountability. Accountability is giving an account for your ability because you are in Christ. You have a new ability because you're in Christ. The blood actually means something. And because the blood means something, then you need people in your life to sit around your table who can hold you to what the blood actually means. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that. It means more than that. And so that's my heart. And, and I think I'm representing our staff and our elder team as well. That's our heart as a church. But we have a problem at St. Hill. And here's the problem. If you, who are sitting here today, are dependent upon our staff for creating a community structure so that you can meet people from the church, we will move very slowly into real family discipleship. There's a supply and demand problem. It just is what it is. Our staff is not big enough to facilitate every single one of you finding your people. Nor do I think it's the responsibility of our staff. The fact is that our church has grown. It's a beautiful thing. Our church has grown. We're, it, we are a different church than we were a year ago meeting at Northside. And it's grown beyond our capacity to provide community uh, groups to all of you. And this has resulted in annoyance with me and our staff. <laughs> there's some of you that you don't like me very much because of what I'm saying right now. And there's many, I hear um, at least once or twice a month, people leave the church because we don't have community groups. If you just had, you know, everything's so wonderful, but you don't have community groups. And so we just, we're out. I want to say that this is also a feature and not a bug. <laughs> Tension, you cut it. <laughs> you guys have expectations when you come to a church, it's true. I have experienced church, I worked for a church that was, you weren't a part of the church unless you were in a community group. You were not considered pastoral, you, you did not have pastoral care unless you were in a community group. The community groups were provided and organized for the members of the church by the church staff and what it produced was entitlement. So that when difficulty arose within the small groups, the communities fell apart because they didn't have, there wasn't a cruciform vision for the community. There was, I showed up at the church. Where's my community group? Where's my people? I'm supposed to have friends, aren't I? Isn't the church supposed to be about family? You guys always talk about family. Where's my family? The strength of the unity of the body of Christ is not found in a staff's ability to make small groups happen, but in the resolve of born-again believers who see the value of laying their lives down for one another and choose to walk through difficulty and see it as sanctification relationally. That's where the unity is gonna come from. So I have a little bit of an experiment going. St. Hill's a big experiment, and this is one of our experiments. What if we were to allow the annoyance the desire for community, to get to such a degree that Christians began to start their own small groups organically as they met people here in the church and at the functions of the church. I heard, a, I heard a, another, like, this is like anathema in the evangelical world, what I'm saying right now. But I, there's one other guy I know of uh, down at Jesus Culture in Sacramento, and he's, he said this. He said, you're telling me that you have the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead coursing through your veins and you can't ask the person sitting next to you out for coffee? <laughs> it's like, well, when you put it that way. So imagine this. Imagine, like, what if you came to Communion Sunday, our Communion Sunday dinner that we're going to have this next uh, Sunday? 
What if you're like, you know what, instead of just hearing the announcements and like flipping through my phone, checking the football scores, what if you actually went out and signed up to go to one of the homes? And what if you didn't stop meeting? What if you kept meeting? What if you all collectively said, you know, this is really awesome. I love doing church around a table. We should do this more often. And you just made a commitment. Let's do that for the next three months and just see how it goes. What if something sparked and you found your people? You never know. You know, we have so many cool things that are happening in and around the church and we, we tell you guys about them, but then they're like poorly attended. And so I wonder like, did you actually, do you know that these are the avenues for you to meet the people around you? These are like, we're trying to do things to shrink the gathering down so that you can get into a room where you're like, yeah, I could say hi to that person. I mean, I guess I have to, I'm here and they're here and everybody else is talking. So I'll, I'll introduce myself. If you're over the age of 40, we have saints over the hill. Saints over the hill. Yeah, yeah. I, man, eight more years for me. Eight more years. <laughs> Where's Mike and Linda? Mike and Linda, will you guys just stand up real fast? This is Mike and Linda. If you are uh, over the age of 40, you're an empty nester, uh, you're like, this church has too many young people. Those are your people. Go introduce yourself to them after the gathering. And uh, they're doing, they do a coffee house once a month right now. Well, they have two events that happen every month. One of them is a coffee house. One of them is a little bit of a surprise. I don't, I don't actually know what the other event is, but it's different every, every month. And uh, we're actually making them deacons today. So this is a very cool day. I'm very happy about that. Yeah. That's an opportunity to find your people. Uh, we are starting in the spring, we're starting these things we're calling practice groups, where we're taking four weeks to look at different spiritual disciplines within the grand tradition that we have as Christians and focusing on those spiritual disciplines for four weeks in small groups together. Join one going to be, I think, deep maturity is going to come from those groups. We have Alpha. We just finished our first uh, run of Alpha. It was awesome. It was a really, really good time. There were, um, I don't, I hope, I, they might be here, but there was a couple gals in my group. I won't say their names or anything like that, but um, who genuinely were encountered by the Holy Spirit for the first time. It was so powerful, so powerful. Um, Alpha, we're going to run it again in the spring. We have all kinds of demographic events. We have youth groups and all sorts of things. If you don't have the app, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with what's going on in and around the church, we have opportunities for you to rub shoulders with one another. And here's my hope. Here's my hope. That what God begins in the spirit between you and a few others, he would continue rather than the church telling you, you should just continue because we do small groups here. And that you would experience the, the profound reality of being known of exposing your fears and seeing them turn into loves, of having honesty take place and confrontation and forgiveness and, and prophecy. Wouldn't that be amazing if you had a time once a week, you could go get with a group of people and you know they will strengthen, encourage, and comfort you no matter what is going on in your week. So powerful. All happening in living rooms and kitchens around Newburgh. That's our vision. As this meal begins to shape your communal life, to end, I want to share a story that I read uh, recently. It's a historical story. So if you want, you can close your eyes and even imagine this. At the end of the Civil War in Richmond, Virginia, on the Sunday after Appomattox and the surrender, a worship service was held in the historical Episcopal Church 
There was an old church that had a balcony where the slaves of the owners had sat for many years with their masters and families sitting downstairs. The practice in this church had been to have two calls for the Lord's Supper, one first for the whites downstairs and then one for the slaves upstairs. But on this given Sunday, at the first call to communion, an older black man, a former slave, began down the central aisle right after the call. Naturally enough, there was surprise and shock downstairs. But what was even more of a shock was when an elderly, white, bearded gentleman got up, hooked his arm in the arm of the former slave, and they went forward and took communion together. That man was Robert E. Lee. There was forgiveness and healing and reunion at the table that day. And hereafter, there was no more segregated communion. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. Let's stand. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.